Good evening, and welcome to Nighty Night with Rabia Chaudhary. Bedtime stories to keep you awake. I'm DJ Lubell, the show's producer. Tonight's episode, we continue our story behind the story series, where Rabia sits down with true crime expert, Ali Conti. Enjoy. Hi, and welcome back to Nighty Night. This is the series where we focus on the stories behind the stories that we've told you. And as I've said in the past, we've got a couple more of these episodes, and then we'll be back in the fall with an entire series of the narrated spooky bedtime stories that you guys love. So stay subscribed and hang in there. And in the meantime, just get a load of these stories that are honestly scarier than fiction. This week, I am really excited to welcome a guest that I have not personally met, but I have been a fan of for the last few months because I discovered a brand new podcast by her. So this week, we are welcoming Ali Conti to the show. And before we get Ali on the conversation, I just want to tell you about her. Ali is a journalist and licensed private investigator with frequent bylines in publications like the New York Times, The New Yorker, and The Atlantic. After she graduated from Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism, Allie got her start covering crime and subcultures at the Miami New Times. She then spent five years as the senior staff writer at Vice Magazine, where she did the first long-form profile of Martin Shkreli, the pharma bro, remember him? And she uncovered a nationwide scam being run on Airbnb. Allie has been a guest on public radio dozens of times, and her very own narrative radio show, Vigilante, premiered in 2022 as a top 10 hit on the Apple podcast charts. Allie also teaches magazine writing at the University of Florida and is currently at work on a book about the American loneliness epidemic. Ali Conti, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, hearing that out loud gave me sort of an existential crisis. My career is sort of all over the place. And I guess you're like, like not- I haven't accomplished enough. Is that what you're saying? No, I'm going to say 99% of that is irrelevant to what we're going to be discussing today. But <laughs> thank you. That was a no, lovely intro. It's absolutely not irrelevant. Believe me, it's deeply relevant. But I want to ask you this. I like to ask my all my guests who've come on are pretty much, I think, all true crime podcasters or have some connection to true crime. It seems like so you got your start in journalism covering crime and subculture. Was that something like you're like, that's the beat I want? Or it, you just kind of ended up there? No, I just ended up in Miami, and then I didn't really have a choice because that's what's going on down there mostly. So. <laughs> How long ago was that? Uh, let's see. That was like 2013. It was right after I graduated from school. So that's about, yeah, 10 years ago now. Wow. So for 10 years, though, it seems like you've stayed on the true crime beat. I have. It's been sort of a through line. I'm, I'm more of like a generalist, but I dip in and out of crime. I do a lot of uh, true crime. I do a lot of white-collar crime, investigative stuff, too. Um, yeah, just general crime. You know, I just recently learned about the work you did on this Airbnb scam stuff, which I haven't gotten a chance to take a look at, but I'm so curious to, because hello, who isn't addicted to Airbnbs in this day and age? I'm going to check that out. But really my introduction to you was through Vigilante. And, you know, this this very show, Nighty Night, is with Cast Media. And I remember I was just like scrolling through their shows on their website one day and I'm like, wait, what's that? And I was just hooked, just hooked within the first episode. And I started messaging all my other true crime content consumers and said, check it out, check it out. You got to check this out. I want you to tell us about this show, um, the story behind, and this is the first season you just wrapped up, right? There will be more seasons. We are at work right now on season two. Is that right? Okay. Tell me about, first of all, was this, was this your concept? The concept was to do a show about this man named Tim Miller, who is a 
for those of you who don't know, I'm assuming if you're really into true crime, you've probably heard of Tim Miller, at least peripherally. He is a famous search and rescuer in Texas. That was the idea that was brought to me. Um, I think we sort of envisioned it as more of like a procedural, like he goes out on searches with scuba, drones, horses, and just kind of searches for missing people, and he does this all over the world. So I think the original conception of the show was to go out and follow him around on a couple of searches. Like a profile of him. Yeah, sort of. And, you know, the reason he got into this is because his own daughter was murdered in the 80s by a person he suspects is a serial killer who's responsible for a few other murders in that area. So, you know, kind of following him around on his day-to-day now and then kind of diving back into that original crime story that spurred his his passion for, for search and rescue. That was sort of the original idea, or at least how it was pitched to me. So, I mean, the murder of his daughter, was her body found? I can't actually remember that detail. Yes, it was found. So it was found in a place called okay. the Texas Killing Fields, which is right. in League City, Texas, a little bit south of Houston. And um, over the course of, I don't remember how many years exactly, it was uh, five. There was uh, four bodies that were found there ultimately. Four skeletons, I should say. They, they were In the same, close. like, kind of fields, basically. Yeah, really close together, too. Not, you know, sp- spread super far apart, too, which is why people sort of always suspected it was the work of one person because they were, they were so close together and imposed sort of similarly. So it's interesting that you frame, like, you know, what the concept of the, the show was going to be um, because when I started listening to it, I thought, oh, Allie's going to be trying to figure out, you know, who killed Tim's daughter. Like that you were actually going to, like that that was the purpose. And then it inadvertently turned into, oh no, let's just talk about Tim Miller here because he's a really interesting character. Um, but it kind of, I guess it was kind of the other way around. Yeah. So I, yeah, like Robbie said, I, I do have my private investigator's license and I got that during the pandemic and was sort of had, sort of had my hands tied. I, I wanted to shadow somebody and, you know, because of COVID, it just didn't happen. Then I got the opportunity to do this show, and I thought, oh, well, maybe I can kind of kill two birds with one stone, do journalism, which is something I've been doing for a long time, like you said, and also shadow Tim, have Tim be the person that I shadow. And uh, it turned out, you know, on our very first phone call, sort of the original conception of the show changed immediately because he he said, oh, by the way, I've solved my daughter's murder, or I think I'm about mm. to solve it, right? So it became a com- kind of a completely different thing where I had the opportunity to sort of work alongside him and, you know, more like observe him. I'm not going to like take credit for having figured any of this out, but it was more like being there for the process of him sort of figuring out these these key details. And there's a lot of new stuff that happened, you know, just within the few months that I spent with him. Yeah. I, I recently listened to kind of like that that final, I guess, update episode. Will mm-hmm. you be having any more of those? I don't know. It depends what, what happens. You know, I'm sort of okay. waiting to hear what, what's going to happen next, if anything. So if, if there's a huge development, you know, I, I would like to. Every one of these episodes that we have a guest on, I make the decision myself, like, okay, with this guest, this is the story I want to talk about with this guest. And I picked this particular story, I guess because of well, Vigilante and, and the suggestion that Tim might be on the tail of a serial killer, because we are talking about a serial killer today. And Ali, I'm going to tell you a story today about a really horrific <laughs> serial killer that I wasn't aware of until really this story was written by one of our amazing slate of writers for Nighty Night. And this woman came up, Belle Gunness. Had you have you ever heard of Belle Gunness? I have not. Like I said, I, I write about I write true crime stories, but I'm not like a true crime head. So like these things from mm. the sort of the archives are often pretty new to me. So I'm excited to hear it. Yeah. I mean this is definitely one from the archives. We're talking about like, you know, <laughs> yeah. late eighteen hundreds, early twentieth century. 
So this is the story behind the episode that we titled The Siren from this past season. And in The Siren, there is a woman who basically lures men to their deaths, which is what sirens have always done <laughs> mythologically. And this is based on a real woman named Belle Gunness. And she was known by many names. Um, she became a total legend. She was called Lady Bluebird, Hell's Princess, which is quite, you know, a title. So, you know, as I always do, I like to just share the sources that we've used for today's episode right at the top. And those are the book Hell's Princess, The Mystery of Belle Gunness, another book called Butcher of Men, America's Femme Fatale, The Story of Serial Killer Belle Gunness, and the Laporta County Historical Society website, which is like a treasure trove of information. And then this History Net article called Belle Gunness's Poisonous Pen. Let me tell you about Belle, Allie. Can't wait. Belle was actually born in Norway, and she was not born Belle. She was born Brynhild Paul's daughter, Storseth. And, you know, she was one of two, like two million Scandinavians who came to the U.S. in like the century between 1825 and 1925. First, her older sister came over. She was the youngest of eight, by the way. Her older sister came over got married, and then Brynhild, as she was called at the time, left Norway when she was 21 and joined her sister in Chicago. The neighborhood that they lived in was a heavily Norwegian neighborhood, and I don't know Chicago very well at all. I don't know if that still exists, if there's like still pockets, or if they've kind of dispersed yet, but I'd be curious to find out if any of our listeners know. But she, I mean, like, it was such a thickly Norwegian place, like, you literally didn't have to even learn to speak English to, to live there. However, Brynhild did change her name and became Bella, um, Bella Peterson, and she started working in the wealthier Chicago households as a domestic servant. So the great American dream is now, like, kind of coming true for her. So that's in Bella, Bella, not Belle? She becomes Bella. She becomes Belle later because okay. this woman has to run. <laughs> From one place to another for reasons that will become clear. Got it. So three names. I can keep track of that. Yeah, yeah. That's fine. We're going to forget about Brynhild. Okay. Uh, Up until, frankly, up until she was Brynhild, there's not a lot of information about her or whether she was involved in any kind of, like, you know, criminal activity. I got to say, though, like, the story seems to evolve pretty quickly in the next, like, decade or so. And it makes you think, like... Nobody just becomes a killer out of nowhere. I feel like there's got to be something, like, you know, some animal torturing in childhood. There's got to be something back there, right? Like, that's just... Yeah, arson. That's just what we know. Yeah. Usually some telltale signs, for sure. There's some telltale signs, yeah. So she gets married in 1884 to a man named Mads Sorensen, who's also from Norway. And they have a little apartment, nice little life. She wants kids. And according to her sister, she was obsessed with money. But hey, I mean... Can't hold that against her. She wants kids so bad that she asked one of her sisters uh, if she could adopt their youngest daughter, Olga. And Nellie said, heck to the no, you cannot have my child. And then she cut her off. But Bella found a way around that. One of her husband's friends, his wife was dying. And on her deathbed, that wife told Bella that you can have my baby daughter. Now, that's pretty gutsy to ask if, you know, a, a question like that on someone's deathbed. But. Deathbed, yeah. Okay. I mean, I. I, I can imagine that maybe she showed up and said, listen, there's going to be, you have like this little infant baby and nobody to take care of her after you die and right. your husband's going to be out The doing framing is important, and, right. Totally. The framing is important. And, but also, I mean, I'm thinking about like this poor woman dying who's probably like, oh yeah, like this woman's a friend and she can help out. Wait, is there a reason she couldn't have kids of her own? I mean, I'm assuming there was some medical reason she needed to go through this process or... 
honestly, there is no evidence, and we're going to go through all these different kids that she had custody of, but there's no evidence that she ever had her own baby. There is evidence that she tried to, that she seemed to fake having her own baby. So it seemed like maybe she couldn't have kids. Okay. She had plenty of lovers, but and husbands, but no kids of her own, we believe. So she takes the baby, and the, the father of the child is like, oh, I thought this was temporary. So at some point, he tries to get the baby back, but he can't get her back. So Bella takes off with the kids. And I don't know if you've heard this before, but there have been, I've read a few stories like where around that time, not just in Chicago, but really in America, there was like an entire industry of like baby trafficking and farming and people who would like steal babies and sell them. Have you have you read any of that stuff before? Baby farming? No, I can't say I've heard that term before. Please go on. <laughs> <laughs> Please go on. Yeah, no, this was a thing. And it was not, it didn't just happen in one place. There have been multiple cases of this, such things happening where, um, and oftentimes it would be women in charge and uh, of the operations and they would kidnap, kidnap children, sell them, end up killing a lot of them. So, you know, it doesn't seem like Bella was in the baby farming trafficking business. It seemed like she just really wanted a baby. But because you know, there were a lot of orphans, illness, babies left, you know, like without anybody to care for them. So at the time, that community, the Norwegian community was holding picnics for orphaned and underprivileged children. And Bella would go and say, I can help. I'll take them in. I'll foster them or adopt them, whatever. And she would get money from the community for doing so. So there were times when she had like up to a dozen kids in her home. How big was this apartment? Jeez. I know. Well, back then, I don't think social services was coming around to check on like, you know, there there was no child welfare happening here. But the thing was, you know, people started noticing that, oh, yeah, she took off with those three kids and we've literally never seen them again. Mm. And these children would just disappear. And they kept giving her additional children after that? I mean, (laughs) apparently she, I mean, like, I'm imagining that if you're in a community where there's like, let's say 30 kids who need a place to go and there's no place for them to go, they're like, okay, well, it's at least a roof over their head. And, you know, she seems like a decent enough woman. What can she be doing with all the kids? She's not eating them, right? Like something. I mean, maybe. I don't know how the story is going to end. Like, (laughs) you you tell me. (laughs) Yeah. But they should definitely have been much more suspicious. But of all the many kids who came in through her house, only four finally kind of ended up, it seemed, being um, adopted in in a more formal way. And I don't know if there's any, like, legal papers, but there were four kids, three who are definitely girls, and one named Axel, who I'm not quite sure if it's a boy or a girl, but... This is how she starts making money, frankly, okay? So she's making money from kids. So apparently they had moved out of the apartment and they had gotten a home, but it burned down, surprisingly. Mm. And they got a nice fat insurance payment Mm. from it. Mm -hmm. They used that money to buy a candy store because where else can you lure little children to? Yeah, I was going to say, that seems very calculated in a (laughs) very bad way. Okay. Selling candy. The store didn't do well, so guess what happened to it? I'm going to guess it burned down, but... Totally burned down. Okay. They got Sensing some more insurance money. For sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, and then they bought like, like an ice they, cream truck. Like what did they do with that? They bet. <laughs> they turned into clowns. <laughs> no, they actually bought a nice house in a nice suburb of Chicago. So in those two years, the four kids that I mentioned before were the kids that like moved into that home with them. Nobody's exactly sure where the kids came from, <laughs> but they were like 
I'm, like little kids. I mean, like the candy store. What do you mean? Yeah, they came with the candy store. Well, it's hard to even. I mean, well, one was three months old, right? Okay. And so that baby did not walk into the candy store by itself. <laughs> um, Caroline, three month old baby, died, and it was diagnosed. The medical examiner, whoever said that she died of acute colitis, which is kind of a bowel obstruction disease okay. thingy. And then a couple years later, another baby, Axel, who was five months old, died of the same condition, apparently. Okay. Um, They were insurance policies. Yeah. yeah, Insurance policies on both these kids. You know, I have to say it's pretty bold to like, it's one thing if the child is like three or four years old and you've had them for a while and then you like dispense with them. But to be like, I got the baby within three months, four months, five months, just killing him basically is what it seems like happened and she collected like and then there's no red flags for the insurance companies right yeah i think this was an era of insane unregulated insurance industry totally where you could burn down your store your house multiple times and no one you know was suspicious of that well there were lots of different insurance companies at the time apparently and you could they would put ads in the paper you could literally like send in a postcard with a penny and and get insured with like some random company well, these houses were – things that burned down were in different places, right? There probably also just wasn't communication between whatever law I, enforcement existed in, in both of those. Yeah, probably. I mean, I, I'm assuming law enforcement wouldn't get involved unless the insurance company was like, this is suspicious. But if everybody, if all of these policies were with different insurance companies, there's like no database here. <laughs> right. Well, she kind of like ups the ante now. Okay. And they start taking in borders because, you know, not enough money. And there's a guy named Peter Gunnis, who's the name you should recognize because right. eventually Bella becomes Belle Gunnis. He stayed with them for a little bit. He was a widow. And then he left. He was a border there. Now, her husband, Mads, had, a, had life insurance. Mm-hmm. But apparently his wife said, I would like you to take a bigger policy. Yeah. And mm. shockingly, he was not suspicious of that. Right. So he had a policy. They got a bigger policy. There was one day in which both of the policies overlapped. And shockingly, that's the day he dies. Mm-hmm. Um, shockingly. Shockingly, because and he's insured <laughs> with two policies. Now, Bella said that, listen, he had a really bad headache. He had an enlarged heart. She gave him some quinine powder or quinine powder. I don't even know what that is or how it's pronounced. And then she burned the paper wrapper that the medicine came in because, of course, we you know, destroying evidence. The doctor wanted to do an autopsy, but Bella just went to complete hysterics and oh, said, yeah. my husband died, blah, blah, blah. Okay. So they just kind of left it alone. Yeah, I have no questions, and so makes sense to me. You have no questions no. at all. And, and, you know, and then they decided that he just died of, like, basically his enlarged heart. He had a brother who was like, this seems really, like, shady to me. He had the body exhumed. And the autopsy showed that he did have an enlarged heart, which was like a chronic condition, but they couldn't afford to do the kind of test to find out whether or not he'd actually been poisoned. So Bella got both those life insurance payouts. So at this point, there has been multiple fires, babies dying, husband dying, and all kinds of, and and now the neighbors were slightly suspicious. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. This actually reminds me like a tiny little bit of a part of the the Tim Miller story. So um, What part of that is? Do you remember uh, the woman whose body got exhumed? Her name is Ellen Beeson. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, Tim suspected that the guy that he suspected killed his daughter also killed this other woman. And yeah. it, her death had been deemed an accidental drowning. So he, like, got her body exhumed, and they found that Which, had- to me, when I heard that, I'm like, how did he even manage to do that? Like, get, it's hard to get a court order to get that done. Absolutely. I mean, I guess he's been working on it for a really long time and has various inroads with uh, yeah. local law enforcement at this point. But, yeah, I mean, even after that happened and they found they had a, there was a crack in this woman's skull, like, they— couldn't prove that it was murder. It's like, it actually seems really hard to prove murder. 
I, I went into this thinking, like, you know, people obviously, like, get falsely imprisoned all the time. Like, it actually must be sort of easy. I don't know. It just I, it's the opposite of what I expected. So, anyway, hearing about yeah. this, this person having a, yeah, his brother's body exhumed made me think of, of that. Yeah. But, I mean, like, the thing is, I mean, the interesting thing about that story that you shared is, like, the cracked skull is like, wait, they didn't, they didn't catch that before they buried her? No. They didn't clean the skull properly, I guess. I don't know. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's so much human error in all of this, right? Nobody could prove anything against Bella. Okay. So now, fast forward, it's a few years later. She's 41. She's a wealthy widow. And she buys a 43-acre farmhouse. So, you know, she's doing well. Right. And she moves to Indiana. And... Getting out of Chicago, beautiful property, and it had like a stable and and like a six bedroom brick house, which was pretty fancy back then, close to a lake. And you know she's kind of living the life of a wealthy widow. Now she still has like three kids with her at, when she moves. We don't know the exact ages. So what's like the total at this point now? Do we know like what? She's got three out of what like thirty six that she had at one point, or do we know the sort of body count? There's little. <laughs> Like, literally nobody's even writing down names. Do you think before she left, like, the picnics, <laughs> sure. they would say, can you just write down on a piece of paper the names of the kids you're taking? Right. All that we know is that a lot of kids were in and out of her home, kind of okay. like, and it was, like, a very informal system. Sure. Um, it wasn't, like, a state-regulated system. It was just, like, the neighborhood saying, we got a bunch of, like, street kids or something. We need, we need a place to go. Got it. Now, the crazy thing to me is, like, it's not the crazy thing. It's It's what I wonder about those kids is, like, if they disappeared, like, what would be the incentive there unless she actually had them all insured? And there's, we don't know. Like, there's no evidence to suggest that she did. Mm-hmm. But maybe she's got sick of them and got rid of them. I don't know. But, anyhow, by the time she becomes this wealthy widow in Indiana, I mean, again, none of these are her own biological kids. She's got one daughter with her named Jenny Olson. Jenny's a little older. She's like a teenager, 16, 17. And two little ones named Myrtle and Lucy. And she changes her name to Belle. And immediately, she takes out insurance on two of the structures on her property, because it's a big property, has lots of structures. There's a boat pavilion close to the lake and a carriage house. And shockingly, what happens to them is that they, I'll let you finish their sentence. Mysteriously burned down? They're burned down. Okay. Um, I mean, it's it's not as, it seems so crazy to me when I read this kind of stuff, but there's never, I mean, I've heard of so, I've heard this happening so many, like fire insurance seems to be like, I know two different people. Like, I personally know two different people. They weren't friends, but I just knew them from the community who both owned restaurants and both their restaurants mysteriously burned down and they got, like, insurance money out of it. And everyone's like, this is clearly a scam. One ended up in prison. The other one didn't. Um, But yeah, this kind of stuff still happens. I was going to say that is a plot point on The Sopranos, but... So you're saying oh. you're, people that you knew actually did burn down their own restaurants for... I'm pretty sure they did, yeah. Well, one well, went to one prison, prison, like we know for sure, right? Yeah. Well, okay. he kind of, he, there there was that, but also he had hired a hitman to kill his wife. So, I mean, it, it's, the food at the restaurant's great, though. I mean, like somebody what, else... What kind of cuisine are we talking here? Oh, Pakistani. My people are crazy. Okay. Um, <laughs> He's in prison for the hit guy. Okay. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah. You should send me an email after this. This seems like it could be, you know, something I could do on my show. He is definitely not a vigilante. <laughs> He's just an asshole. Um, <laughs> okay, fair enough. Yeah. Well, I thought there might so, be something there, you know? That's fine. Yeah. No, but, um, but hey, I do have, I have some ideas. I'll be emailing you. Um, you. So anyhow, so Bella's like, listen, I need a man, right? Like, I have, I can attract all kinds of guys now because I'm, look, the way she's set up. And she starts looking for husbands and she reconnects with that widower who had been a boarder at their home mm. with her first husband, mm-hmm. Peter Gunnis. They get married. 
And he had two young daughters that he brings with them into the marriage. One's named Swanhild and the other's Jenny, who was an infant. A little bit after he moved in with Belle, she calls the doctor saying the baby, Jenny, the infant is sick. And a uh, doctor couldn't find anything wrong. And a couple of days later, Jenny was dead. Mm-hmm. And she had died while she was in Belle's care, like uh, literally a week after they gotten married. The doctor actually suspected that she was smothered, didn't have any proof. So cause of death was edema of the lungs. Which means which, what? Do you know what that is? Edema is like, it's swelling. Like if you have edema in the brain, like it's swelling okay. the lungs. But you know, that happens because your breathing has been restricted somehow. Right. <laughs> so he just didn't get like, he said cause of death, but not like manner of death, I suppose. Sure. Like, oh, she was actually, but he suspected. But again, like you said, it's actually really hard to prove, right? Sometimes, especially right. Like, we're talking like hundred years ago. But yeah, where, where are the police in this? If the doctor suspects this, why is the burden of proof on the doctor? Like, you know what I'm saying? Shouldn't there be? Well, there's, <laughs> okay. So as, a, so Belle, the rest of her documented life and criminal history is actually on this property. And Shockingly, lots of people report all kinds of stuff to the local sheriff, and there's actually rumors that she's got some kind of relationship with him because he's like, whatever. He will not investigate any of it, any of the disappearances, and there are so many to come. First of all, this new husband, I mean, he dies the same year. Like, they got married in April, December, he's dead, and she calls the doctor, and she said a meat grinder had fallen off a shelf and hit her husband in the head also a pot of hot brine had been knocked off into the stone and onto him. Those are oddly sp- specific, <laughs> right? You know what I mean? I like, that is, in and of itself is suspicious. Like, too many details, you know? Hot brine? I mean, the amount of force, a meat grinder is a big, heavy For object, sure. right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And then you've got a pot of brine. I don't know if you've ever brined a turkey or any kind of meat. Have you? I don't No, I don't think so. Okay. So a brine is like this big. It's like salt, right? It's not just salt, though. It's yeah. like a big, you take a big pot of, it's, you submerge the meat like in this, in liquid that has, has salt, sugar, brown sugar, so all kinds of aromatics and spices. And it's like pickling, for pickling juice kind of almost. Um, it doesn't pickle it. It okay. just marinates it. it I know marinates nothing about it, this so. really, so I'm going to stop guessing. People <laughs> brine your turkeys for Thanksgiving, but here's the thing. Okay. You're talking about a tub of water that's got to hold a huge slab of meat. So it's really heavy. Like sure. the pots that I make my brine in, I could put like a three-year-old child in. That's how big they are. They're huge pots. So these are two monstrous objects that like <laughs> accidentally got knocked onto him, right, right? Is what she's saying. But what was even more, even more suspicious was the doctor's like, well, that's interesting because the body is in rigor mortis. Now, you're a private investigator. I, do you know like anything about rigor mortis? I mean, I know what it how is. Long that takes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I'm not sure I understand why that disproves why it's her. suspicious? Yeah, for sure. You tell me. Well, rigor mortis is when the body starts stiffening after death. Right. So especially in the winter, rigor mortis takes about 10 hours in cold oh. weather, 10 to 12 hours, for that to happen after death. And then after that, the body starts softening again. So what if you find a body that's in rigor mortis, it means you can, kind of like ga- you can kind of gauge the time of death from it, right? Like, So the doctor's like, this guy's been dead for like half a day. So what you're telling me is bullshit. And none of the injuries matched up. I'm guessing he was like burned because she, the Brian story, there was an inquest, but she was cleared. And (laughs) once again, neighbors were steering clear of her. They didn't want to get on her bad side. She was like real confrontational. They kept reporting stuff to the sheriff and he kept ignoring it. And 
So her second husband, or is this the third husband's, death was ruled accidental, and Belle collected insurance money. Yeah, to be fair, I would not want to get involved with this person either, you know? Yeah. That makes uh, complete sense to me. I'd probably move away. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if, like, any of the stories followed her from Chicago or not, but— I don't think so. I I can't imagine— There's no communication like that. You know, it's like you can just keep moving on and on, and it's not going to follow Yeah, and there's no official record. If there's—she hasn't gone to prison. She's not been charged with anything. There's not, like, any record that can follow her. So her husband's brother, Gustav, heard about his death a few weeks later, and then he shows up in town, meets with the sheriff, who, again, refused to look into it. And Gustav's like, listen, I got to, you know, one of my brother's daughters is already dead, right? Jenny mm-hmm. died a week after. And he's like, Swanhild is still there. So he like breaks into the farm and smuggles her out in the middle of the night because Belle wouldn't let him just voluntarily take her. All right. Um, what a hero. I mean, that's what you got to do in that situation for sure. That's one kid who made it out of her home alive. Right. The frankly. one. Um, yeah, Jeez. we know. Of, yeah, at least that one. Oof. So here's where there's a weird twist. Peter dies of the mic grinder on his head. Mm-hmm. And a little while later, like literally a few months later, this baby boy, like an infant, shows up at the farm. Like people are like, where'd you get that baby? And she's like, it's my baby. I had it. <laughs> she, <laughs> she had even called the midwife to say, I'm having a baby. And when the midwife got there, the baby was already <laughs> birthed and washed and dressed. Probably like walking around, you know. Sorry. He's walking around. This baby's been born for a while. All right. Wow. But the birth was never registered by her, but she went around saying, it's my baby. People are like, that does not look like a newborn. That looks like a six-month-old. Right. But anyhow, she passed it off and named the baby Philip. Now, she started hiring. She needed farm help. Obviously, she got 43 acres. She hires a farmhand, this guy named Olaf, to work. She's just placing ads and papers all over the place for farmhands, but also for husbands. She apparently gets involved with him, and he tells his dad that, I met somebody, I'm in love, we're getting married. But then he disappears. And the, his father comes looking for him, and she's like, oh, Olaf, like, left. He went out west, you know, looking for his fortune. Then a guy named Henry, and, like, Henry is, like, the second of many other farmhands who came to the farm and then disappeared. And apparently all of them had, like, both a working relationship and intimate relationships with Belle. She girlfriend was getting it on. Yeah, um, the most amazing part of the story to me so far is that she can keep track of all these people. You've named, like, 75 babies and 15 dudes in the past, you know, 10 minutes. Well, you know, she had a method. It was like one guy at a time. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. But they never lasted more than, I think, a few months or weeks, maybe, depending on how, you know, if they annoyed her, they disappeared. Okay. So, you know, she's posting ads for a new husband, and she's saying, listen, I'm very wealthy, and you can be a partner not just in this marriage, but in my wealth. And she talked about her cooking skills and how romantic she was. This, like, in her ads, she got tons of mail from, like, all kinds of men, like, widows and divorce guys and, you know, whatever. Because she was old. She was considered older back then, like, in her 40s. Mm-hmm. And frankly, I mean, you can look her up. There's photographs of Belle. She was not— I uh, have done that literally since we started talking, and that is another amazing portion of this to me. But go ahead. I'll let you say it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, look, she worked what what she had, which wasn't a lot, but she worked it. Um, Yeah, she was not any great beauty, but she did, you know, look, she's a woman with money. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of men out there who are like, well, she seems nice on paper and she's got money in a farm. So I'll move, you know, move in with her. Anyway, so this happens over and over. This guy, this one guy, George Anderson from Missouri, he's like younger than her. He shows up because he's like, they've been corresponding and he's like, yeah, yeah, let's get married. But he goes to her farm. They have, they're have they not married yet. And 
she she tells these guys like, oh, if you have any assets, sell them before you come. Bring your cash because you're going to move in with me and we're going to be like, you know, married and it's our money now. Mm. My money is your money and your money is my money. But he wakes up in her house and she's like leaning over him. What? Looking like she's going to do something to him. Sure. And then he realizes like, I get out of here. So he literally flees on foot and leaves his stuff behind and like just takes off. And then another guy who's like an older guy named Ole, O-L-E, Ole. That doesn't sound right. But anyway, he comes, sells his assets, cashed in his mortgage note, told his family, I'm in love. I'm leaving. I'm moving in with this woman. And then, you know, he goes there, disappears. The money's gone. All these guys, so many men come to her house and leave stuff and disappear, like take off. That she has an entire room in her house full of their stuff, their clothing, their trunks. So are any of these men that like are running away because they feel like they're about to get murdered talking to the police at this point? Being like, hey, you might want to go check this out. The only guy who ever went to the police and reported that I fled was George, the guy who found her leaning. Right. Anybody else who has gone there and disappeared has literally disappeared. So right. they haven't shown up anywhere. And okay. she's like, oh, they took off west, east, north, who knows? Right. So what do you say to the police at that point? Like, I just got a suspicious feeling because I saw this woman leaning over me. She, just, she wasn't, like, holding a knife or anything, right? Just, well, just kind of a vibe. Well, sheriff is, probably wouldn't have cared because, uh, you know, at this point, like, I don't know, 15 men and children have disappeared um, after Mm -hmm. entering her property, and he still refuses to investigate, even though family members keep asking him to. Sure. So, and then in 1906, her um, older foster daughter, Jenny, disappears. And so Belle tells Jenny that she's she went out to college. She went to college in Los Angeles, but nobody ever heard from Jenny again. Again, she was a child who, like, Belle had taken in and probably had nobody to keep track of her. Well, that's the assumption because nobody finds her or checks on her. Anyhow. This goes on until about 1908, and this is where finally things start unraveling for her. <laughs> she meets one more guy, this guy named Andrew Helgelian. Helgelian, I look, Norwegian names. She convinces him to come from his farm in South Dakota, sell everything, and come, although he doesn't. He comes to visit her in January 1908, and he tells his brother before he goes that I'll be home in a week. I'm just going to go, like, check this lady out. Smart. Yes, yeah, smart. They spend the weekend together. Then they go to the bank on Monday and start the process of taking cash out for some reason. Like, he's going to take a bunch of cash out and give it to her. Not smart. Yeah, the bank's like, no, we can't do the transfer because his bank is somewhere else. It'll take days. And Belle got pissed off. In the meantime, there's a farmhand she's got named Ray. And this guy's kind of instrumental in Belle's story who was on her farm working with her for a while. And then apparently they had a falling out. They apparently were also romantically involved. He gets jealous that she's seeing this new guy, Andrew, and actually raised one of the other people who actually makes it off the farm, um, you know, and doesn't just disappear into thin airs. And over like the following few months, everybody in the community knows that like Ray and Belle keep getting into it. Like they mm-hmm. have all these little like skirmishes and and legal things and like they accuse each other of shit. So she gets a new farmhand, whatever. She's got this new man, but Andrew never returns, as he's going to say, after a week. And so... So the brother is going to show up, right? The brother shows up. Yeah, okay. Good. So he shows up. First, he goes to Andrew's farm. He's like, let me see if I can find some clues. This guy's a little investigator, and he finds letters that Belle has written. And it's like, all right, now I know exactly where he is. So Mm. he, he goes there. And he goes to his brother's bank and finds out that the brother had cashed out some CDs. And so then he wrote to Belle. The brother writes to Belle and says, I'm coming. I'm coming to Laporta and I'm going to investigate. Something is wrong here. That's when, I guess, maybe for some reason, Belle thinks the jig is up or she decides, 
like there's only so many bodies I can bury and I got to get out of here. So before he can arrive, Belle calls her lawyer and says, I need a will. I'm going to leave everything to like the kids that I've got left. (laughs) (laughs) They deserve it. Jeez. Can't imagine what it's like living in that house. Probably not great. Yeah. And she also tells him very specifically, the lawyer, that I'm afraid Ray, the farmhand that she's gotten, Mm -hmm. like, you know, into conflict with, is going to kill me and burn my house. So I want this will drafted. They make a will, put it in a safe deposit box. Why is the brother giving her warning that he's coming up there to investigate? That actually makes zero sense. There's something to say for, like, the element of surprise, no? Like, you're giving her tons of time. It's not like you can just— travel super fast in those days, right? So he's given her probably like a week's lead time to hide evidence. You know, this evidence. guy, I mean, I can't imagine that he would be like, oh, she's definitely a serial killer or something. He's probably thinking, whatever's going on, you know, like this is one, her one chance to get my brother to contact me or something like that, right? Like he maybe, he, like he, he, how would he even imagine like what he's actually dealing with here, right? right. So I, I don't know. I mean, even though- Especially because she's a woman, I feel like, you know, obviously the- the term serial killer was not, like, thrown around in those days. But especially for a yeah. woman to do something like that, I don't think that would cross this guy's mind. So that makes yeah. a little bit more sense, but still. Yeah. And then for somebody, if they were going to murder somebody, to leave, like, a hard and fast, like, trail of evidence. Here's letters calling you out to my farm. Right. Who knows? Anyhow, uh, we get to kind of what I call is the Last Supper, which is the evening of April 27th, 1908. The Gunnis family and their most recent farmhand, Joe, are having a big dinner. And Belle is in an unusually jovial mood. She gets toys for the little kids, and they stay up playing games. Joe goes to bed, does not find it suspicious that on that day she had bought gallons of kerosene. (laughs) But then he wakes up in the middle of the night to the smell of smoke and Mm. realizes the house is on fire. So he bangs on the door. Now, he's apparently not sleeping in the house. He farmhand, so he's maybe sleeping in the barn or something, I don't know, but he's outside the house. Anyhow, he tries to get in, and the doors are all locked from the inside. Sheriff comes, neighbors appear, a bucket brigade shows up, and, you know, they just, they're trying to put the fire out, but they cannot do it, because clearly she has used much of that kerosene to burn down the house, Mm -hmm. and the house burns completely to the ground, and the bricks are so hot that they have to wait, like, hours for them to cool enough just to search through the rubble. Now, very interesting. As they search the rubble, in the corner of a cellar, they find the two girls, the two little girls. Oh, my God. The boy, Philip. Remember the mysterious infant that maybe was born? Mm -hmm. And a headless woman. Oh. Okay. So this accounts for the family, right? Belle Gunnis and her three kids. But she's headless. And so I'm going to ask you, Ellie, (laughs) what does this suggest to you? Oh, boy. How do you read this crime scene? (laughs) What? Like, sorry. I don't know. That was just like a twist that I was not suspecting. I thought you were, when you said a headless woman, it was just going to be like some other person that she picked up and, and murdered. Um, I mean, one of the craziest things, I think, is that like there were people who were saying, oh my God, she killed herself, but her head, her head is head, gone. Right, man. yeah. Right. Like you cannot cut off your own head and put it in a third location. <laughs> no. Uh, and also... The kids are all in the cellar. That's not where they would have gone to bed, right? Obviously, like, that's... Someone something is very there. weird. Now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Someone put them there. They would not have... Unless you you could say, well, maybe when the fire started, they fled to the cellar instead of unlocking a door and trying to get out, which makes no sense. But all the doors are locked from the inside. Right. But pre- previous to this, though, she was like, I think this guy is going to kill me, this farmhand, right? So they're probably thinking it's... Something. And burned down yeah. the house. Okay. Well, yup. <laughs> <laughs> 
because she called it, and so they're like, it must be Ray, because she told her lawyer that I think Ray's going to kill me and burn down the house. But she's the one who bought, like, 25 gallons of kerosene. Right. Not um, a normal thing to bring to a dinner party, so yeah, that should be suspicious. Ray gets arrested. The frontman gets Ray arrested. gets arrested? I'm sorry. Yeah, he gets arrested. <laughs> That's kind of, I mean, after all the things that this woman has done, and this, and she literally provides, like, yeah. some, like, hearsay on a, a piece of paper, and this guy gets arrested... Come on. So, you know, here's the thing. I, <laughs> I I have seen some really bad investigations in my work for undisclosed and the wrongful um, conviction stuff. I do, like, really bad investigations. At this point, I'm willing to give them just, like, the tiniest bit of benefit of the doubt because they, are, they have not yet discovered what they're about to discover, okay? They're like, this woman already suspected he's going to burn it down, and it's a headless body, so clearly someone killed this woman right. who we believe is Belle, and she couldn't have done it to herself, so... And this is definitely Bell, right? That's what they think. But he was like, I had nothing to do with this. I he had an alibi, and he actually was working at another farm that morning. And anyhow, he still got like arraigned for murder and arson. In the meantime, Andrew's brother finally arrives, the guy who had like given her the letter yeah. saying I'm coming. Wow. And he was like, This is something's like not right. And he's able to, because I mean, I guess, like, the police work is not real tight there. He's like, you know what, I'm going to go to the property and just start digging. So he goes, stays with some neighbors, and they're like, listen, this woman has had, like, a history of people disappearing. We should check the property. They start digging. And body after body comes up. They they find burlap bags with body parts in them. They find, like, severed limbs and heads in different places. And then that's when the brother actually recognizes Andrew's oh, no. head in one of these burlap sacks. Then they find all these other depressions around the farm and the hog pen, and they find Jenny Olson. And Jenny was the foster daughter she said <clears throat> was going to college. Right. They find then two other men and another woman. And so suddenly all these bodies are coming up. And the the interesting thing is, like, this whole thing was photographed as it was happening. And those pictures, if you go to the Laporta County Historical Society, web, Society website, you can find pictures of this whole process of them digging up and finding bodies. So it's all been documented. And in the meantime, Ray's like, listen, I knew nothing about these murders, but she did always ask me to buy rat poison and chloroform for her. So, for you know. But he's, he still says I had nothing to do with any of those murders or murdering the family at the end. So anyway, families of people who had disappeared start showing up and they're identifying, you know, their loved ones. Oh my God. But this place becomes like a huge tourist scene. Thousands of people coming. There are food vendors. Oh, stop. Really? Well, yeah. That's circus. fun for the whole family. Um, All right. You know, whenever I read like these historical stories and I'm like, and I and then I'll hear something like kind of contemporary that says, oh, this this huge like interest in true crime has exploded. I'm like, no, I think it's always been there. I was about to say that's so morbid and disturbing, but I guess that's like literally the same impulse that drives people to listen to true crime podcasts. So I'm not going to. Maybe. Yeah. At least part of it. Yeah. yeah there's some voyeurism, voyeurism there. Definitely. Sure. I mean, this had national newspaper coverage and um, there were souvenirs people would take from the crime scene. And it was just a big mess. And this sheriff was like an idiot. Finally, like about a month later, the property's like auctioned off, and I can't imagine who would buy who it. Who is but buying that? Yeah, exactly. I don't. I think somebody who maybe turned it into a tourist. Yeah, I was going to say if it has or, tourist attraction potential, then that, that makes sense. I guess I wouldn't want to live there, but yeah, sure. Actually, yeah, I wonder what's. I wonder if it's been preserved now. What's going on with it now? But the sheriff says when they finally hit like eleven bodies, he's like, "That's enough digging. Let's. Just, we're going to stop now. <laughs> we don't need to keep digging." And you know, 
I don't know what the sheriff was like, what was going on with the sheriff, but he he was not interested in like exposing Belle. Finally, they have a formal investigation and they estimate that she might have been responsible for about 25 murders all told over her lifespan. I'm surprised that's it. I feel like you've named at least like 50 people at this point, but maybe that's just an well, estimate. So there's also all the unnamed people, right? Like, totally. you know, farmhands whose names we don't know and children whose names we don't know. So the woman who's bought the headless body that was found in the cellar with the three children, surprisingly, the head was never found. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm guessing because the head did not belong to Belle. And also people were like, that body looks a little small to be Belle. Belle was like a, a, a thick farm working lady. Yeah. And then given her history, the fact that she's like planned stuff for years. I mean, it, there's absolutely no way. She was just sitting around waiting to be decapitated and burned to the ground. I think it's pretty obvious that that was somebody else obviously the you had to get rid of the head fingerprints mm-hmm. were not like nobody's matching fingerprints but the head you could, that was the one way to identify somebody and she had to get rid of it who knows who that poor one was nobody knows at all yeah i was gonna say i mean there it doesn't seem like she's been tied to any other murders of like adult women except for like maybe that foster daughter who was allegedly off into college. No, but they did find, other than the, the foster daughter, they who was around 17 when she disappeared, they did find the body of one other woman okay. on the farm. Got it. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. It sounds like it could be somebody's, like, sister coming to look for her. It absolutely. You know what I mean? Totally. I totally know. could be. It could be somebody, she's like, I'm hiring a, nurse, a governess for my children. I mean, who knows, right? Like, right. But this is where I'm like, okay, now I can no longer give a pass to these investigators because you have just discovered like a dozen bodies and a history of what this woman's been doing and you're still prosecuting Ray. I mean, they they go forward with Ray's trial, okay? Right. He was, however, found innocent of murdering the family, but guilty of arson, which is weird. And he goes to prison for arson and he dies in prison like pretty much the same year. Now, huh. Yeah, that's like the end of what we know about Belle. Okay. Belle disappeared. And I, I think it's very obvious that that was not Belle's body, but right. she literally just disappeared. You can't cut off your own head. I mean, that's... You're not going to cut off your own head. Sure. And so and then there were like different, like different, and this is not uncommon. Like, you know, people love to confess to things. There's always some kooks who do that uh-huh. for whatever reason, or they're trying to cut a deal or whatever. So there were all kinds of different stories that came out in like, the following year. Like this one inmate in Texas was like, I helped commit the murders with Belle, that she did abortions on her farm and that she'd have to get rid of the bodies of babies and mothers when they didn't make it. Anyhow, his letter was taken seriously. He wrote a 19-page signed confession, Mm -hmm. um, then recanted it. You know, funny, people were doing this kind of stuff then, but it's only like recently that we're like, oh yeah, people will falsely confess. It was a false confession because it turns out he was in prison the entire killing spree that, you know, <laughs> right. he had never, okay. he'd been in prison the whole time. So, well, it's happened in the Tim real. Miller case, too. There was a, a guy who confessed in, in prison and had just basically read news coverage of the Texas Killing Fields murders and was able to sort of pretend enough just based on the details that had been released that he, like, knew things. And, yeah, he just wanted to get out of prison for a little bit and walk around, you know, outside. It's not actually, it, once yeah. you're already in prison for life, it's like, you know. What's what? Yeah. What's I mean, a, like, I may as well try more. to cut a deal. Right. Totally. Yeah. I mean, like, this happens all the time and it totally throws an investigation, like, into chaos, especially until recently. People are like, who would confess to something they didn't do? Especially mm-hmm. something this heinous, right? But no, people will do it. And then there was, like, this reverend who said that I met with this other, like, inmate who confessed to me that he helped Ray kill them that night. 
that didn't appear to go anywhere. Then another inmate comes forward, said he took care of Ray while Ray was dying, and that Ray gave him a deathbed statement, also quite common, jailhouse snitches type of thing. Mm -hmm. And that, and but that Ray had told him, and maybe there's a kernel of truth in this, that Belle was alive and had hired a woman from Chicago to work at the farm and then poisoned her, decapitated her. And then Ray had buried her head in a box somewhere on the property, which oh. if the sheriff hadn't stopped digging, maybe they would have found. Right. Um, and then Ray apparently also on his deathbed said that Belle had murdered her three children by poisoning and that a man from Chicago came and picked her up that night and she disappeared. Okay. So Who Ray knows? knew some stuff. I was going to say justice for Ray. This sounds really kind of messed up, but it sounds like he was very culpable in this. Yeah. There's no way Ray was working on the farm and just buying chloroform left and right, right. for no reason. Like, what do you use chloroform for? Like, there's only literally like one use for totally. it, I think. Yeah. You know, I think what's funny to me about this story, and that's pretty much kind of when it, where it ends, although I would be fascinated to see, like, can we find where she went and what she did? Like, how does somebody – could somebody like that just, like, stop doing that is what you wonder, no, right? absolutely not. Yeah. I'm guessing she had a stash of cash and gold and all kinds of stuff she took off with. Mm -hmm. But even that stuff will get depleted. Right. And I think she just liked killing people. I don't know. She, she must have died, like, soon after, after being on the lam, you know, of – whatever cause because maybe yeah, this, would, this would have popped up again like like you said people can't really stop yeah doing this well she's not the only i mean like the, so there were some serial killers including h.h H. holmes like, operating at the mm -hmm. time and there was another woman who was arrested on suspicion of poisoning like six different husbands or something and for a while and this happened a few years after um this fire and all that. And the folks were trying to make a connection saying, oh, that must be Belle because like she just reinvented, got a new identity. But it turned out it wasn't her. But it wasn't an uncommon thing. I guess it was just happening here and there. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, there to me, like, you know, if you read some of the books and articles, it's like, there's this mystery. Did Belle murder her children and stage her own death? And said, well, yeah. Yes. I think the answer is yes. <laughs> yes, definitely. I, do you think we solved it, Allie? I do. I mean, you, you know, yes, I feel like a genius. I, you know, you let me fill in the blanks a couple of times, like, oh, the house burned down or they disappeared. <laughs> yeah, it seems like a pretty easy one. I don't know. But, like, I think that she was able to get away with it because she was a woman and people were just, like, not suspicious of her at all. Like, I did a story when I was in Miami about these women who were going around and drugging men at nightclubs and stealing their Rolexes. And they no got way. away with this forever. Like, they made probably— it was more than a million dollars, and they even got an NFL player involved. But the reason they were able to get away with this is because the men would wake up, and they wouldn't go to the police. They were so embarrassed, yeah. right? Like, I fell for this. I got taken by a woman. It's not quite the yeah. same thing, but I think that, you know, people just have this lack of suspicion toward women and criminality, and she was yeah. just able to sort of deflect attention. Like, I mean, look what happened to Ray. Like, the cops were clearly capable of, of arresting people, right? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. She just wasn't— suspected for for whatever reason i think it's because I mean, she's a woman yeah and then she put those 43 acres to use she's like i'm leaving no evidence behind like when people disappear like they would have to you know if she said they just took off it's unless you have evidence to the contrary and then you have a sheriff who just doesn't want to like maybe she's got something going on with him she clearly was yeah had a lot of lovers yeah the sheriff uh seems like he knew something or was like in collusion with her, right? Like, gotta be. Or he was smitten by her and said, not Again, her, I, I have She's Googled adorable. this woman during our conversation. <laughs> and Is that, she not adorable? <laughs> She's, She's a hard-looking woman. You know, like you said, she worked yeah. on a farm and, uh, you know, lived she 100 years like, ago she, and looked like yeah. it. So. She looks like she works a farm 100 years ago. Yeah, totally. Um, no, I do, I do think you're right. I think that there are, like, this 
that's how like the black widows get away with it for for so long but anyhow so that's the story of Balganas. definitely one of the most terrifying uh, women i've read about and not a vigilante definitely not but when i was deciding like what story did i want to do with you i thought okay you did kind of a serial killer story, so let's go with the serial killer story. Well, the um, guy's brother is kind of a vigilante, right? Like, the cops refuse to do any searching of the property real. at all. And he shows up and he's just like, I got a shovel. Like, let's yeah. let's go. Um, let's go. So he, he yeah. fits the bill a little bit. And he gets all the neighbors in, meaning the neighbors are like, you are definitely right. Something is happening on that farm. <laughs> you know, yeah. he didn't have to, like, he didn't do it himself. He, Everybody was, like, kind of ready to, like, storm that property except for the sheriff. So, yeah. Well, it's probably um, a form of entertainment for them back then. You know, like, it was like a... A fun activity to yeah. go digging in the, the woman's yard. Yeah, yeah probably. Yeah. All right. So I want, uh, before we wrap up, <laughs> sure. one more time, I want folks to know, first of all, we're, we're, are you on social media? Can people follow you directly? And I am find on social you? media. I am on Twitter. Yeah. Okay. What's your handle? Uh, it's my name with an underscore in between. So Allie, A-L-L-I-E, underscore Conti, C-O-N-T-I. And I will be posting uh, updates. Yes. Yeah. Folks, find Allie, follow her, listen to Vigilante, check out all her investigative reporting. And once again, if you have a really interesting story that you think uh, Allie could do uh, a series on, where can they contact you? We have an email address set up. It's vigilante at castmedia with a K dot com. And mm. please, I will call you if you have something. Awesome. Oh, that would, that would be so cool if something came, like one of our listeners came, <laughs> yeah. came up with the next story. Well, when is the next season going to come out? That, that is a I want to know question. as a listener. I think it is going to be in November. And we're doing a couple oh. of single episodes before that, like self-contained sort of things. So Love it. Love yeah. it. Okay. I was expecting like maybe like another year was going to go by, but no. you're going to be back around pretty quick. Yep. Glutton for punishment. Awesome. So <laughs> I work fast. Listen, once a podcaster, I, I when I first started, I was like, I'm just doing the series, but a non's case, and then I'm done. Mm -hmm. But you've been sucked into the vortex now. You're never leaving podcasting again. <laughs> <laughs> just my back is like tensing up. I can just feel like, you know, <laughs> the anxiety that I'm, you know, about to put myself through. But yeah, totally. Can't wait. Look, we, we can change the world from, you know, mics in our basements and PJs. I think it's great. Mm. Um, all right, Ali, thank you so much for joining me this week. It's been great chatting with you, and I wish you no nightmares about Belgunas. Likewise. Well, it's nice to meet uh, you, and this is a unusual way for me to start my day. It's going to give me some <laughs> deep, deep anxiety for the rest of my life. It's uh, all afternoon. uphill from here. That's true. See, that's the silver lining, all uphill from here. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you guys for tuning in. And we'll be back. We have one more episode after this in our Story Behind the Story series. And then we'll take a little break for the summer and be back in the fall. Thank you guys for checking in. Nighty Night is executive produced by Rabia Chaudhry and Colin Thompson. It's produced by DJ Lubell. It's sound designed and edited by Anton Doty. Original music by Andrew Gerlicker. Nighty Night is a cast original podcast.